Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm getting shocked look from my guests that are in studio. First time with in-studio guests in three years. You guys are the first. So you might want to mention the in-studio means in studio outdoors. We are not in a technical studio. We are sitting outside in beautiful Northern California, surrounded by beautiful trees. It is an amazing day. And I'm I'm super excited to have these There's guests with pro. me. And let me let me tell you guys. Okay, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to guests today. This is very exciting. We're talking monkeypox, and we're talking about it with a couple of really great people, uh, all of which have been on the show before. And me. And also Dr. Jeremy Faust, ER doctor, writer of Inside Medicine on Bulletin.com. I highly recommend reading that, by the way. And MedPage Today editor. Jeremy, thank you for coming on. Good to be back. We are also joined by Graham Walker, emergency doctor in San Francisco, California. Hey, Thanks bud. Thanks for having me. Hey, good man. Good to be back as well. It's good to see people in front of me um, and talking. I actually haven't done an in-person interview in so long that this is a little bit um, terrifying, and uh, but good, in a good way. I'm it's already a, socially anxious. It, I, I'm so used to not seeing people like when we're doing these things like and seeing having them see all like the, the little sweat on my face and all my little idiosyncrasies under my pits, the sweat, you know, all that stuff. So this is all a little bit terrifying for me. But you know what? You're supposed to do something terrifying every day, right? And for me, that's talking to people. Also joining us is Dr. Neuro Furrier, medical communicator, CDC technical lead. He does ID, infectious disease research. He is joining us via phone. So sorry you couldn't join us, my friend. It's okay. I don't have to deal with the social anxiety of seeing your guys. So it's okay. If it, you <laughs> know... I was going to say the one thing that is really nice about doing uh, Zoom interviews is that I get to uh, not have to wear pants. But Jeremy and Graham said that wasn't necessary. So yeah, I am I am not wearing them now either. So <laughs> hopefully you're comfortable over there wherever you are. Um, okay. Comfortable. We have so much to talk about. Uh, so much fun stuff to cover. Let's get right to it. Uh, well, actually, probably let me take it back. Fun may not be the right word, but we have a lot to cover here. So let's get right to it. Let's start with a conversation about monkeypox. And let's start with the basics of it. Now, Dr. Neuro Fourier, again, am I saying that right? Or is it Fourier? Yeah, you are. Okay, Neuro Fourier. You can Fourier. just say Dr. Neuro too, yeah. We'll just say Dr. <laughs> we're going to go to well. Dr. Neuro at this point. And I'm just going to mention, in case people are asking, we're not using your real name. Your real name is not Dr. Neuro Fourier. But because of your position, we're going to continue to use your nom de gueule, which is Dr. Neuro Fourier. So let's start with some. I'm getting, this is the this is the thing that I missed is the the when you have two guests and they're like talking about you while you're interviewing them. That's what's happening with Graham and Jeremy. They're sending signals back and forth like We're about cringing of your French pronunciation. But that wasn't so bad, was it? <laughs> no, come on. Let me hear you guys say Neurofurier. Let's hear it. Neurofurier. Neurofurier. That's, not, that's, that's how I would say. That was pretty good. And, and you're, you're, nom de, you're, you're like nom de guerre. Nom de guerre. Okay. Fine. Oui, bien sûr. Okay. Je suis désolé. Nom de plume. Um, so let's start with you, Dr. Neuro. Can you let's let's start with the basics of uh, monkeypox. Can I just ask you what kind of virus is it? So this is an orthopox virus. Uh, this is within the same family of. Um, that virus is in this case like smallpox, um, but in this case right here is obviously not to the degree of what we see with smallpox, obviously, in this situation here, but it is an part of the orthopox virus family. 
it, so the the famous relative that we always speak of is smallpox, right? Mm-hmm. How different are these two viruses? So in terms of antigenic differences, I mean, they're actually pretty close. That's actually one of the many reasons why we do, um, you know, obviously some of the vaccines we have developed, um, some of the treatments we have developed is actually, uh, effic- will, will in terms of like animal studies and limited studies we've seen is efficacious against um, monkeypox. Um, but obviously in terms of like how it clin- clinically manifests, like obviously like smallpox as we've known in many of our history texts and our history lessons is that uh, it devastate a lot of the world in a very good chunk of time, um, which uh, luckily for now at this point, it's not something what we're seeing here with monkeypox. However, a number c- the astronomical rise in cases um, and just in general how it's presenting is something that we are concerned about, which is why we have, you know, both the WHO and the United States has like declared it as a, uh, a public health emergency for, uh, for that reason alone. Let me, let me ask you, Jeremy, because um, you've written a little bit about this. Does it meet the criteria in that, that's been set forth as a pandemic for something to be a pandemic? Well, they haven't called it a pandemic. The, the, the World Health Organization has not done that. No, no major body has declared it that. The WHO declared it a public health emergency of international concern, mm-hmm. which... Rolls co- right off the tongue. It does. A p-hack. <laughs> a p-hack. p-hack. Um, and, and that was just historically, for example... The novel, the then novel coronavirus, COVID-19, was designated as a public health emergency of international concern in late January of 2020. And then by March, they said it was a pandemic. And sort of politically, by the time they mentioned it was a pandemic, it had sort of been pandemic for a while. And so it was sort of a late and coming thing. So I think that, interestingly enough, and I'm not going to recite chapter and verse on, on like the, the check boxes. Um, in this case, I think they kind of got ahead in a good way of calling it a public health emergency of international concern. The c- technical committee at the WHO actually downvoted that on the criteria. And then the general director of WHO, Tedros um, Ghebreyesus, Dr. Tedros, everyone calls him, kind of said, you know what, let's just it's close vote. There's a lot going, a lot at stake. Let's do it. And I think that's the right call. It unlocks resources, directs a lot of communication. The hardest thing about this uh, is really tracking a virus and, yeah. and then and knowing where it is. So I think that that was an appropriate escalation. I don't think it yet. No major body has said it's pandemic or it's a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we could be headed in there. But I, I, I actually haven't like lately looked at like what box you'd have to check. Mm-hmm. But I think right mm-hmm. now escalating is the right move. Okay. And Graham, you're an emergency room doctor in San Francisco. I assume you have seen more cases than anyone here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how it's presenting? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I, I do think we have San Francisco specifically probably is has the largest per capita or highest concentration of cases. You know, New York technically has more. London has a bunch as well. The, the country of Spain technically has huh. per capita the most, but of a major city, I think San Francisco, because we're only 800,000 people, mm-hmm. is probably the, the largest kind of per capita um, rate in the world. So I have seen um, at least a dozen cases in the mm-hmm. emergency department. For me, it is presenting, um, in all of my cases, has been exclusively in gay men. Um, every single one has also had a sexual encounter um, prior to this as well. And that is certainly how it appears to have spread uh, originally was through what we're calling kind of persistent close skin-to-skin contact, often through uh, you know sexual intercourse, but certainly does not have to be. But all of the cases I have seen have had a, you know, a prior sexual encounter um, with a new partner, um, sometimes with known lesions, sometimes without known lesions, um, and again, all in gay men, typically presenting with numerous painful lesions on their body that start out as these pox and then kind of will ulcerate um, and causes severe pain in these patients. And is that seem about right from what monkeypox has been described as in the past? I mean, my question is, this is not a new virus. It's been around, you know, since the, the 50s at least. How different does this current strain of it or what we're seeing now uh, compared to prior uh, descriptions of it. Yeah, we're, we're seeing more pox that tend to be in the locations where we think maybe the the, it, the infection was transmitted. So more and more pox in the genitals and the anus and the mouth, where if you look in textbooks, even from five years ago, really the, the pox were supposed to be 
on the face and spread more slowly, mm -hmm. often with many more pox, um, and often having a, a prodrome of fever, body aches, malaise, fatigue, lymph mm -hmm. nodes. And we're not seeing that nearly as much. About 60% of people will have systemic symptoms. Dr. Nero, you, you're going to mention something about that? Oh, no, no. I mean, I think one of the main things we're also seeing here is that uh, just to kind of like add on to uh, Graham's point as well, you know, just from some of the literature we have seen and data from uh, a lot of the cases we observed in Africa for quite some time, because they've been going through this up, you know, for much longer than uh, we, you know, obviously since we've declared it as a public health emergency here, but um, Africa CDC has been working with many cases of you know, especially Nigeria, when um, they declared it in by use of states, like in 2017, I believe. Um, and a lot of the cases we've seen here are, you know, do have subtle differences as well in terms of what we're seeing here. Um, but obviously, like in terms of like major trajectory of like how what we see in the disease states has not really drastically changed to the point where we need to like shift our strategy. But it is something we need to be, it does kind of put a lot, a pin on of like how much we still need to like, research and understand uh, monkeypox in general and how it manifests. Let me ask you a question, Jeremy, and then everyone can weigh in. If people ask you, is this an STI, sexually transmitted infection, what do you say? I'd say it's more than that. I'd say that it can be transmitted sexually, but uh -huh. you, that's not the only way. I mean, technically, you'd have to have, you know, vaginal secretion semen as to sexually trans to, to meet the definition of a sexually transmitted infection. Yeah. This is close contact. This is skin-to-skin -skin prolonged contact. Um, so that in includes sex, but it, it you don't have to. So you can you, you hear about, you know, sharing bedding, cuddling, yeah. kissing. And we also think about, like, HIV. You cannot get HIV from kissing somebody, but you can't absolutely get uh, monkeypox from kissing somebody. So, and that's actually one thing I want to talk about was sort of, like, just to jump on what, what Graham had said, like this prodrome is this like this seven, 10 days of preceding symptoms. Like majority of people, that's what they have, but not everybody. Like the, the MMWR, the CDC sort of journal said that 58% of people had something other than a rash come first. But then the thing is, in order to get tested, you have to have the rash. So we don't even know if there are people who never get a rash. And we, we haven't mm -hmm. seen, like, yeah. if, if you swab the pharynx, will those people have a positive test? And the answer is people who are known positive, there are positive swabs pharyngeal. There's anal swabs that are positive. The lesions, of course, are flamingly positive. Yeah. Um, but, like, we don't know if there's an asymptomatic or presymptomatic transmission happening. And that, to me, is the scariest part of all this, is we actually don't know, like, what tip of the iceberg, how much of the iceberg we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. There, was a, there was a study of a Belgian yep. sex clinic, and I think it, there was a 4% what they were calling asymptomatic positive rate. Um, so people that, at least, you know, asymptomatic, presymptomatic, I don't think that was clearly defined in that study, but there were people that didn't seem to have any symptoms, when, and they were just kind of testing everybody that showed up to that um, sexual health clinic, and those yep. people did, did you know, test positive. And not only did they test positive in that study, and that's a, that was a preprint that's now in a Lancet journal, I think, their, um, their viral loads in the mouth were similar to people who were symptomatic. So that implies some similar degree of contagiousness in, in the oral route. But what we don't know is how much of the transmission is oral. Because if you then look at this other Lancet paper from the other day, the, the, the viral loads from the lesions themselves are way, way more viremic, have much more virus in, in the lesions right. than you see um, in the salivary and the pharynx. So there's so many question marks. Yeah. So let's talk about testing then. How is, it sounds like um, testing has been very difficult to get done. Um, a, why is that? And you're probably the one to talk to about that, Graham, because you're the one doing it. And and Dr. Neuro, I want to hear what you have to mention, say about this as well. But A, how, how do you do the testing? Uh, how difficult has it been? And is it getting better? Yeah, Dr. Neuro, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, like I, I'll start off right now just to be an honest truth is that the testing has been abysmal. Um, we've been very slow from the get-go, and we're still kind of very slow in terms of that. Um, part of it is like, you know, in terms of like how we do testing is that, you know, from a hospital system, you would normally do a, a, you know, just test for in this case, if it is an orthopox virus, and then that sample would be sent over to a CDC. And this is like from when we first did it, and we would confirm whether it, it is monkeypox or not. Um, obviously, since then, we've expanded this to like, you know, other commercial laboratories to kind of, uh, you know, expand the testing capacity from there. 
but even then it's still very much there's still a bit of a bottleneck in terms of like uh turnover rate for how quickly you can get samples back and forth um and it's it's it needs to be a lot faster and part of it too right now we're also looking at uh in we're also talking to other folks about innovative ways such as salivary tests um to uh start expanding you know those capacities beyond that of just laboratory based like you know confirmation of uh, monkeypox as well and I, I know there's some research and there was a paper that was just uh, put out uh, in a preprint just earlier uh to kind of talk about like success of like a uh, salivary test for that but um from there getting to like actually a commercially available one uh that's still that's still a long road ahead and so i, I hope that obviously from that along with you know us expanding testing capacity through uh you know our internet like kind of our national laboratory set and be much more robust than it is right now because at this point it's not sufficient by any stretch of means i actually and have a i probably can't speak actually Go i have on. a question i have a question um for you dr neuro um the the tests are are like PCRs. They're nucleotide amplification tests. You take a you're looking for the genetic material of the virus, and as far as I know, like all you need is primers. Like you just need the right like little molecule to say, oh here, amplify this part. Like why is it so hard just to like get a bunch of primers out there and just like send them out to Quest or whatever diagnostics and just say, look, labs order new primers every day. Like amplify this thing. Like why why is it harder than that? That I do not know the answer to. Um, it is something that we had I had asked a while ago as to why we couldn't why this was a much more complicated uh, you know testing regimen than like what we have seen with other sort of tests, and uh, I could not get really much of a straight answer from right. that. Because like an antigen so, test is hard. You have to figure out like these lateral flow yeah. tests. Like, is it working, and what's the sensitivity? But like, at some point, like a PCR is like you know this has been going on since 1982. Like we know how to do them. Is it? I mean, I, I mean, I've never sent a test for a smallpox, so I wouldn't know. But how difficult is it to, if you were a clinician and you had a concern of smallpox, how difficult Monkey is pox. that? Well, I'm actually, or, or oh, I see. yeah, like say if you actually thought maybe smallpox, how hard is that to get tested? My, what I'm trying to get at is, are we making this unnecessarily difficult because we're using the same road map that we used for testing smallpox? as opposed to con just considering this a virus? What what makes this so special? You know, I think part of this, and this is this kind of applies to a lot of the controversy surrounding a lot of how we've been handling the vaccination storages in the Strategic National Reserve and all that is, I, I think a lot of our responses we've been hinging on was kind of looking at like, you know, from the lens of a smallpox, like, um, you know, attack in this case. So. If uh, you know, for those who are listening and don't know, they you know when we, when we developed that strategic national reserve of you know the ACAN 2000 and the Genios vaccine, like it was meant to be done in the case of a bioterrorist attack on 9/11 after 9/11. Um, and I think a lot of times, in terms of like, and and you, there was a great article that came out recently that kind of discussed like some of the un unfortunate logistic issues and uh, a lot of the like stumbles that we've made in terms of like keeping those supplies on hand that's why many expired but um a lot of it is just the, for the fact that we were pretty much operating on the lens of if smallpox were to become a thing and how would we manage it um and unfortunately now with monkeypox that kind of throws a complete wrench in a lot of how we were, wanted to look at it how we were to implement a strategy and how we wanted to actually deploy uh a vaccine to all the different groups and obviously now with a significantly less <laughs> vaccine than we had anticipated um a much much less uh that has kind of thrown everything into kind of like a you know unfortunate like chaos that yeah. we're trying to figure out like how do we how do we like you know uh, expand the existing dosage right now while you know bavarian nordic is trying to scale up production for the entire globe and also like maintain you know like obviously like target like interventions for you know the population that needed and how do we define that? And that has been like one of the biggest challenges so far um, as we are kind of traversing the next few weeks. Yeah, for, for to me, what's funny about this, what's frustrating about the response is unlike COVID, I mean, we didn't have to start from scratch. We knew what we were dealing with. We knew how to deal with it. But because of that's because of smallpox, which we are worried about as a as a, like a, a terrorist threat. And it sounds like because it was so wrapped up in that, that's part of my impression, at least, of why the rollout and 
uh, and treatment of this nationally has not been great. Um, Graham, from your perspective, you know, out there in the ER, how has it been testing people? You know, it's interesting. One of my infectious disease colleagues says, especially with, with our population in San Francisco, he says, you know, when you see the rash, there's monkeypox. And then when you test it, there's false negative monkeypox. I mean, this the rash that I've seen in every single patient, and I've now talked to some colleagues across the country who've seen variants, but every single patient I've seen has had slam dunk, classic. I have zero concern of any, there's any other disease process besides monkeypox yeah. going on. Yeah. Based on, you know, the location, the lesions, taking a basic medical and sexual history as well, where I think testing is going to be critical and is probably already critical and we're way behind is the atypical lesions people that currently we do not think have uh, think of as high risk you know there's a woman in georgia that's made the news recently because she tested positive she's a cashier she states very clearly i do not have i've not had any sexual encounters that would have exposed me to this Mm -hmm. so she assumes she maybe got it from some cash she Mm. she was you know exchanging as part of her job she had confirmed monkeypox in Georgia. She has lesions, you know, all over her body. Um, she's not a gay man, obviously. So um, that is where I think we need, we really need testing. You know, I posted a recent um, photo of a peritonsillar abscess on Twitter. It's monkeypox. Hmm. Um, I have a co- you know, I have a friend in the East Coast who literally said two days ago, I hadn't seen your Twitter post. I missed it. I had a patient mm. with that exact same. Did they thing. try to drain it? No, they did not. They just gave okay. it some antibiotics. Um, <laughs> For tonsillitis. But um, I think we are going to see more and more variants, variable presentations. You know, there's people who have skin abscesses. There's people who have um, lots of other presentations that you wouldn't normally assume is monkeypox. And you need to take a history. And really, I think we probably need to start testing things more more thoroughly. Test everything. I mean, I, I think, and I've been saying this since the beginning of COVID, contact tracing is a, a nice thing to try. But let's say this person in Georgia is completely above board about everything and whatever. Fine. But people lie about sex all the time. And, and it's, not, it's none of your business. And even as your doctor, you walk in, it's like you just met them in an ER. Like, are they really going to tell me everything? Well, a lot of them do, but a lot of them don't. And so the yeah. only way around this is to basically give everyone tests, either like a, a hand personal test they can take with them or just easy access with, with not a lot of questions. But if, if in order to get a test, the first, first five questions are like, who, what, where, why, and how yeah. did you get monkeypox? Sure. Then no one's going to come forward. Yeah. All right. Let Let's transition a little bit here. I mean, clearly, I think all of us here are probably a little disappointed in the overall rollout, if not very upset, <laughs> about how we've rolled out testing and vaccines here uh, and and treatment. Uh, Tpox. We'll We'll talk about those things. But let me just ask you guys. How much of this is a fault of our public health system? I'm always a little hesitant to lay the blame at the feet of our public health, just because I, I feel like a lot of times, not just because one of them is a guest right here on the phone, but because, <laughs> you know, they I, I feel like they're doing what they can with the amount they're given. But again, given that we should have learned some things in the last couple of years, how much of this is is their fault? Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I I can start. I am quite critical of our federal response um, from public health. I'm also I also try to highlight that public health has been underfunded since I was born in 1980. Yeah. Uh, For, you know, if you read Michael Lewis's book, The Premonition, one of their takeaways of how can we help public health departments in California specifically was buy them new fax machines. (laughs) <laughs> that is that, that was actually a learning that they passed along to other people across the country is to help public health officers manage and track COVID. Well, you need to get them a fax machine that works better or, or faxes faster or prints out better because that is the state of public health yeah. in the United States. Yeah. There is there has not been a digital revolution in public health. The CDC nor really even the local or state or counties have any... Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud platform that yeah. allows them to easily query and track and submit data, you know, anonymously or be able to protect it in right, certain right. ways too. Jeremy, is this just an example of uh, some public entity being underfunded and then failing and then blaming them for it and then defunding <laughs> them even further? 
Yeah, I think that's probably the cycle you're looking at. But I also think that what Dr. Nero said is important, which is we've been thinking a lot about outbreaks in terms of um, some kind of human attack, you know, a, a public health, a, a public health emergency created by humans to hurt people, you know, terrorism or whatever, bioterrorism. And in fact, we need to think about preventing outbreaks that are like this. And there aren't that, yeah, there aren't that many. I mean, we, yes, there's probably 30, 50 usual suspects that could break out, but I'd, I'd like to see the creation of, you know, a national stockpile that says, okay, if we have uh, a, a new influenza um, outbreak, do we have enough influenza tests that we could ship tomorrow and it's always a thing that, like if you spend a little bit of money now you save a lot down the road yeah because you, you you can't play catch up once it's happened and so i think that we just need to rethink uh, our outbreak plans um and unfortunately we just haven't done that so mm -hmm. i don't know who to point the finger at i don't want to do that sure. but i just think that both and even now like i'll tell you like for where i live in boston um th there's not really a surge plan for for COVID, for example, so we're trying to work on one. But yeah. I think that um, I think we just have to change the way we think about this thing and, and be a little more prepared for the early phase while you have time to ramp up more specific responses. It's yeah. kind of like innate immunity versus acquired immunity. Like yeah. we got to have more innate <laughs> protection, and then that'll buy us time to do like the more specific stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about Doctor N? What do you What do you think? I mean, I'll agree with every point said and I, I think part of the two is like you know um we always have this reactionary like you know stance in terms of like how we want to approach like uh supporting and funding public health when you know really like we have to remember that public health very much like it it, it excels when we can prevent <laughs> you know a lot mm -hmm. of these things from happening and also doing surveillance but i, I also want to echo the second point for me is that like um, you know, a lot of the surveillance has been severely underdone in terms of a lot of how we do global surveillance. You know, we knew monkeypox has existed for oh, quite some time. And, you know, the Africa CDC has many a times asked the international community for support, uh, you know, in fighting and combating monkeypox. And they were kind of, they were just kind of left on red um, mm. in their text messages. And I, I think, and you know, but it makes I got so that reference. That, you know, I got had, that reference. Yeah. Just so you know, I got every now and then I catch yeah, I a that. pop culture reference. Okay, and sorry. The and the rest of us need to touch grass. Yeah, yeah, we all need to touch grass. Apparently. <laughs> but I think you know, like, and, and obviously seeing like all those doses expire, and you know, to this day, like, I don't even know if the single dose of the Genios vaccine or ACAM for that fact has made it into the Africa continent. And yeah. I, I, I think that in and of itself is a failure of not just the public health institution, but like also just the global community as well. Because again, like when we look at infectious diseases or just outbreaks of any kind is that it is very much an international problem. And I think we take too much of a nationalistic, uh, you know, perspective when we look at outbreaks and say, oh, well, it's happening in this country or, you know, this continent, we don't have to worry about that. But that's not the case anymore. And we're starting to see more and more zoonotic spillovers. We are starting to see more uh, situations where pathogens and infectious agents are, uh, you know, crossing over, you know, borderline. They don't care as to like what country they're in. They're going to do what they're going to do. And that, that thinking, that kind of process within our governments needs to completely change as well as to understand that when we, when we do surveillance and when we see these events that we as a global community need to take the action. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, anyone can be anywhere else in the world within about 24 hours with not a lot. You know, you don't need a lot of money yeah. to be able to fly from any one place to any other place. And I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing more pandemics and where people are just traveling. Yeah. Their air travel has made it really easy to go anywhere. And the zoonotic infections have just been waiting. I mean, I, I yeah. looked at a, I have a paper that when I was starting to research monkeypox, it literally, it's from like 2005 or something. And it says, oh, two of the more common things that we're worried about are this coronavirus thing mm -hmm. and this monkey virus thing, <laughs> um, a monkeypox virus. And so just the fact that like people are publishing about this and we've just been kind of all asleep at the wheel. Yeah. That's why I'm saying we should bring back boat travel. Um, we should all do <laughs> exclusive boat travel because then, yeah, it's going to spread like wildfire on the boat, but then you keep it at the dock. Boom. That's the whole, well, that's, that's, that's quarantine. Yeah, the quarantine. 14 days. Automatic the, quarantine. The, yeah. The derivation of the word. So um, let's switch a little bit here. I want to talk a little bit about 
how to focus on the people that seem to need it the most without stigmatizing. We've seen what happens <laughs> when um, there's stigma attached to a disease. People don't test for it as much. It spreads surreptitiously, um, and it eventually affects everybody, even if it's not initially. And so it doesn't do anybody any good in the long run. But at the same time, we in this country have a pretty spotty, and by spotty I mean horrible, track record of uh, treating minorities, in this case, uh, the, the gay community. And I don't know how we thread that line, toe the line, of focusing our attention on that community, because that's where it needs it the most right now, without creating stigma there. Um, and, I, and I would understand really easily if the gay community had its reservations about interacting with the medical community at this point because of the history we've had in, in treating them. So do you think that the stigma is a problem currently with, within the gay community? Do you think this is, it's, it's being stigmatized currently? I, I can start. I, um, do I think monkeypox? Monkeypox. Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, I think gay men are very appropriately worried about monkeypox. Um, you know, maybe two two months ago, probably people were not. Yeah. But I, I think the word is out with many people that this is spreading amongst our community, mm-hmm. and um, and people don't want to get it. And you know, I'll also say from the dozen patients I've seen, no one wants to give it to anybody else. I mean, this thing yeah. people would not wor- wish this on their worst enemy. It is so you, miserable. You know, you know that brings up a really good point. It, it brings up a point that in a way we are so lucky that right now it's the gay community dealing with this because there's no other community that is more responsible <laughs> about mean, this and stuff. And also just like more willing you know? just like to talk about things that are difficult to talk about. Yeah, I was gonna say like, uh, you know, if if you're seeing you know a gay man in the ER and you need to at- take a sexual history, they will be the probably the most open group of people and will openly and honestly tell you about kind of their sexual practices and they're the ones lining up for the vaccines trying desperately to get vaccinated for this people line up at 4 a.m at sf general hoping that by noon they get a vaccine well i mean i'm sorry dr n I don't know. i'm in in agreement but i also want to note too you know one of the big challenges we're seeing here is that uh, a lot of the patients that we're seeing who are lining up for the vaccines are in usually more affluent, uh, mm. you know, white cisgendered, uh, you know, males who are um, going there. So I think part of the challenge, too, is that, you know, if we do intend to obviously expand access to the vaccines, that we are also not forgetting, you know, marginalized communities as well that, you know, obviously we not done our due diligence either with the coronavirus uh, response um, in reaching out for them and also doing this. We need to do the same as well for monkeypox and ensuring that we don't make that same stumble. So, yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, really the, 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 the highest risk group of people here is if we want to talk about it openly and honestly, it is a behavior based high risk group, right? It is not um, being gay does not make you a higher risk group. Mm-hmm. You're probably your social network probably contains more gay men than maybe a straight guy would. Um, and so you might be more likely to encounter someone in your daily life that you know that has monkeypox. Sure. But it really is a selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Behavior-based thing. 
Houston has done a really good job with this, and um, the Netherlands have both both done a really good job with kind of qualifying people for vaccination more based on their behaviors than their kind of sexual orientation as well. But I think the way we're going to get there, first of all, we have to know more about this vaccine. I mean, I support vaccination. I think that this uh, vaccine needs to be uh, upscaled. But if you, I spent some time the past couple of days looking through the literature, and I don't know much about this despite that. Usually when I do a deep dive, I come out knowing a lot. I don't know a lot about the efficacy of this of this vaccine. And so you want to be really careful yeah. that you don't have people line up or, or as Dr. Neuro says, go find the community that needs it. Go door to door to find that high risk community that usually gets ignored. And then they get a vaccine and then they think they've got a silver bullet. Yeah. We don't we don't know what we're telling them what it means. And so but yes. the, the, the grander also point is if we're going to reach everybody, I kind of would take the sort of HPV approach. It's like people of a certain age need it. I don't really care. I, I, I don't really care. Sure. Sure, certainly at first we need to worry about the higher risk networks. But in order to really get rid of this problem, it's like going to be everyone who could possibly be at risk, which is going to be pretty obvious to figure out who that is. Mm-hmm. Most people. <laughs> I think the, the biggest challenge is the same. One of the biggest challenges we've seen with COVID as well is the messaging and the science changes. And the, I think the general public, I mean, even us physicians, it's hard to pivot and change your message and your your science rapidly because people say, well, I can't keep up with it, it changed. You said something different two weeks ago. Right, right. And so it's, you know, it's hard to maybe currently, as we're talking today here in early August, um, talking about, uh, you know, vaccines predominantly for gay men and sex workers and things like that. But maybe by the time this comes out in two yeah. weeks, there's a whole a whole different policy on who should yeah. be vaccinated. Well. Right. And I think everything kind of needs to be time stamped. It's like, yeah. as of August, here's what we think. Yes. But it's right. like, then they'll just say, here's what we think. And they'll take you out of context. It, no matter what you do, people will claim you you changed and that's bad as opposed to, no, we, we actually, good. we learned. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. Which is the one thing I wish we had gotten across about COVID and we still have not, which is there's so many people out there that are like, I don't know what to believe about COVID. You guys said this at first and then you said this and then you said this. And it's true that our messaging changed and was sloppy, especially at first. But at the same time, that's also how science works. It's going to change as we get more information. And that is hard to to get across, to communicate to the public for reasons I still, I'm still not clear to me. I feel like that should be a big part of our messaging. But we're afraid to say that. Doctors in general, I think, I think are very afraid to say, I don't know. I think that's a sign of a good doctor is one that says, you know, I don't know. I say, I don't know, but I know a great GI doctor that will definitely be able to follow up with you. That's me. He's talking about me, people. (laughs) He's talking about me. Um, So we talked a little bit about the questions about the vaccine. But recently, Jeremy, you wrote about a a potential change to how it's delivered that might give us more options or more people that we can treat. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yesterday, the FDA issued a new authorization that says the Genios vaccine um, can be given in a one-fifth dose. In other words, by going intradermally into the skin, as opposed to subcutaneously under the skin, you can get a one. You can get the same return on investment for one-fifth the dose. So now a one vial is five doses instead of one dose. This was based on a 2015 paper um, that, that showed antibody responses. The problem is whether or not this is progress or not. So I think it could very well be amazing progress. Like, wow, we went from 400,000 doses yesterday to 2 million doses today. Like, that's great news if it works. And I think that we don't quite know enough, and people are really concerned about this. Like, Philip Kraus and Luciana Borio wrote a piece in Stat yesterday, which is these are former FDA scientists saying basically this like, okay, this will be great if it's true, uh, but there's some problems. Like, um, it's a two dose vaccine, and apparently, when you give it um, intradermally, um, there's a much bigger uh, sort of local reaction, so people don't want to come back for the mm-hmm. second dose. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? You need both doses. So yep. we need a lot more information on efficacy, effectiveness, um, and to make sure that this, on the sort of holistic level, that it actually works as well as we think it, it does. Yeah. I like the idea of innovation. I like this move, yeah. but I think yeah. that this should not be the end of the conversation right. on this tactic. It should be the beginning of a very intense short period of study, which I think wouldn't be that hard to do. You can mention anything else. Dr. N, sorry. No, I also want to add too from one facet is that, you know, they always, a lot of folks have pointed me to a 2015 study as well when we're looking at the, you know, intradermal approach. One of the things I want to also echo is that we need to make sure that we are evaluating immunogenicity for immunocompromised people, those with HIV, uh, because I just don't, I, I worry that the intradermal approach 
uh, might not be a robust enough response uh, for those who are immunocompromised, which is a data point that we just don't have enough of. So, All right. And so we talked a little bit about the, the vaccine. How do we feel about TPOX, the, the treatment for it? Any, any sense of its efficacy in, in treating monkeypox? I have no opinions on TPOX. Yeah, no, you know, none. none. Um, <laughs> TPOX, Ticoviramat, or Tecoviramat, um, is, you know, has been approved. And it's kind of interesting. It was approved in 2018. And since we didn't want to give anybody smallpox, which seems like a quite reasonable thing to yeah. do, it was approved through testing on animals for monkeypox. Because monkeypox is a pretty good, pretty pretty good corollary. Um, so, from case series, it seems to be highly effective. I hang out now on monkeypox positive on Reddit, and just learn from people. People are very open there with their anonymous accounts. They post photos and like literally a day by day, pox by pox lesion <laughs> approach where they say like, "Hey, this is my third day on tpox. Here's what my my lesions look like." And it's, I mean, so far from the case series is, is quite impressive yeah, yeah. how the lesions are closing, healing. Um, and then I, I should also say that it was in that same 2018 trial in about 400 adults. The dosage was also trialed and there was about a 1% rate of um, side effects, mostly yeah. by not fueled by kind of nausea, which is an extremely common, yeah. um, usually quite well tolerated you know, side, side effect, effect. Of, a, yeah. of a drug. One thing I think the animal studies show, and again, I just kind of in the middle of my deep dive here, so I feel like I'm sort of like a half like loaded gun here. But um, that the, you would half loaded is still more fully loaded than most of us. So that's that's okay. I'll take you okay. quarter loaded. Even. Okay, all right, fair enough. And after this, let's get you really loaded. Okay, with yeah, exactly. alcohol, absolutely. Uh, go on anytime. No, the um, and they did challenge trials with animals and gave high high doses um, and to see how how they did clinically and giving earlier. Um, you know, day zero, one, two, three, four after challenge, the the death rate like literally went to zero. So we know that that this can be very effective against preventing severe outcomes, severe disease in extremely laboratory unique situations. These high high doses of a virus, of a surrogate virus. Um, what we don't know anything about is uh, you know what's the counterfactual. What, what, what where's the you know this is the this is going to be like the um, the devil's advocate like. Where, do those lesions go away at a similar time frame um, if they don't take the T-pox? Um, and to Dr. Nero's point, like, what dose do you give someone who's immune compromised? Um, so I, I think it's clearly an effective drug. I just, I feel like I don't know enough about it to know, like, to, to, to have the kind of conversation that I, I think we usually have with our patients. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, all right, let's move on to listener questions here. Um, because there's quite a number of them. I won't go through all of them. We'll just we'll do a couple here. Um, let's start with Brandon Mizrock at Brand Miz 25. What what's the th there's the names get pretty amazing. That was that was pretty mild. Um, I look forward to the questions from people with a string of numbers after that. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Those are a lot of Alex five two one seven three. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I got this from the COVID vaccine. Account right? created either yesterday or in <laughs> yeah. 2009. I'm not right. sure which. All right, so what's the thought on reinfection? Once people recover, are they safe to resume normal activities? That's This is a multi-part question. Any any input on anything we know about that so far? I, I assume it's kind of a little early to know that, but are we seeing reinfection? You know, uh, I, I can't speak as much to reinfection. I can say that with prior monkeypox, we, we were really telling people, um, once the scab, once you scab, you are you're good. Um, you're no longer yeah. infectious. They have done some. They've they've PCR'd scabs and still find a ton of viral particles and, and DNA there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my anecdote is I I did have a patient who had a partner with monkeypox. Um, they waited until the partner's um, uh, monkeypox had scabbed over. Yeah. And then my patient did get monkeypox from from his partner. Interesting. So uh, that has, and I mean they literally waited. Yeah. And they said, the, the, my patient told me, we waited till it scabbed over because we thought that's what we were supposed to right. do. Yeah. So that did change the way that I've been counseling patients that really, um, and, you know, I, I could be wrong. That could be a yeah. weird end of one thing. But right. um, I've been counseling patients. I think you probably should wait yeah. for skin-to-skin -skin contact until the, the scabs also fall off as well. Right. And you're kind of back to just maybe a, a small little, um, you know, scar or yeah. whatever we're going to call that post-pox lesion mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Clearly, with um, prior vaccination against smallpox, 
we know that you can be infected still. That that mm-hmm. data set came out showing that, you know, a lot of people who there's a European study had in the past had a smallpox vaccination in the study actually did pick up monkeypox. Um, but I don't know whether. So we're gonna start to ask. We're gonna ask questions that we never thought we'd have to ask. Like, oh, gee, how many years or how many months? And is it is reinfection mild or does reinfection happen or is that yeah. just a, a post vaccine thing? These are questions that I can't begin to answer. Yeah. And uh, there's a couple of the good questions here as that um, or parts of this question, but I think we covered some of them. So let me go on to um, just one more part of his question, which is any cases of asymptomatic transmission. We kind of discussed that we're not entirely sure, um, but is it Dr. N, can you weigh in on on known asymptomatic transmission? I don't know if there's any like actually known. I mean, it's definitely I, I will ex, I will exercise kind of like the caution that Dr. Ramoyne has coined as well is that we there's a possibility that there is asymptomatic or pre or post asymptomatic spread, but um, I don't think it constitutes a majority of the cases we've seen so far. Um, but it's something we're not ruling out okay. from a lot of the cases. I, I was just going to say I, I think there probably needs to either be what we'd call asymptomatic or maybe pre-symptomatic um, uh, infections um, or the or uh, people don't have um, uh, the, the lesions that they have are not yet painful. Yeah, exactly. Um, because if we're going to, we can either call it, you know, primarily contact-based um, and, the, uh, you know, transmission. And these lesions are extremely painful, at least the ones that they, by the time they get to the ER, yeah. they're extremely painful. It may be once the lesion just becomes a tiny little, you know, uh, millimeter pimple, it's not yet painful, and but that can still transmit. Or we have people um, that it's being transmitted through other maybe bodily fluids, saliva, yeah. semen, things like that. Because, I mean, I just cannot imagine um, one of my patients who literally, they, they can't even, they've told me they can't even wear underwear or pants. Yeah. They roll over in bed and they wake up because the pain is so severe. Yeah. Can't imagine that person having yeah. sexual intercourse. That should not be understated. It sounds like the pain involved with this is intense. Um, and particularly in some of the areas that you're seeing it, I'm sure it's contributing to it. But even on, like, say, arm, if you get on the arm or the chest, it sounds like it's incredibly painful yeah. for patients. Well, they just mm-hmm. as a posture thing, I thought the CDC's technical guideline or technical readout was smart on this. They said asymptomatic transmission is not known, but it's being investigated. And I thought that's a really yeah. smart way to phrase it, yeah. as opposed to, like, we got we had the WHO early in COVID saying, oh, th- there's no asymptomatic COVID transmission. What are you talking about? Yeah. It's like, no, we just ev- absence of evidence right. is not evidence of absence. Right, so right, right. I thought that the way yeah. they phrased that was smart. Yeah. Jeremy reads those documents much closer than I do. Really? That's why we have him on the show. Because I will not. <laughs> I'm kind of more of a skimmer of the well, you're, broad you're, CDC you're very, WHO guidance. You're very busy dealing with people's very painful lesions. To, I don't want to, to give do away that. any hints, but if you just, I was like, Command F, asymptomatic. <laughs> That's good. That, you got to be looking I, for I went that. to my part. Yeah, <laughs> That's good. That was what I was interested in. All right. <laughs> There's a lot of questions that are some variation of this next one. So uh, I'll, just, I'll just read this one. It's by Dhruv Bhagavan at Dhruv Bhagavan. Uh, one, it's another multi-part one. One, extent of fomite transmission, in particular service workers who may come into contact with, say, something like uh, contaminated fabrics. I think fentanyl is the main concern on, on services. If you're a police officer and a child hands you a bill full of fentanyl, the, the kid will be fine. But it's only the, the, yeah, the cops. But yeah, the yeah, cop will actually be able to. I could hear sure. Ryan Marino like, screaming yeah, somewhere. He haunts this uh, podcast. Um, so, but this is a question that people are really worried about, yeah. you know. And, and if you do read the, like some of the guidelines, they are a little bit um, vague about this. They say, you know, there's at least the possibility that like sheets or something that have been used with someone with a lesion can be transmitted. What do you, what are you guys telling people in in this regards? Are you telling them this is high risk, low risk, no risk? What do you guys say, Doctor Nero? What are you Depends. It depends. I mean, here's the thing is that not all surface contact or fomite, trans- fomite transmission is equal in this case. I mean, it could depend on uh, whether if it has been in contact with a lesion, how long, uh, you know, whether like where you're near content with them, you know, obviously that surface, uh, the how long are you in contact with that surface, right? If you're just a casual glance or are you like literally smashing your hand against it um, or, you know, and then also just in general, like basic hygiene, like are you washing your hands or are you doing anything afterwards? Um there's a lot that can be set for it. So 
you know, my, my general thing to tell people in general when it comes to like bone marrow surface transmission is that it's possible, but I don't think it's one of the major uh, routes of transmissions that we have seen so far uh, in a lot of the cases we've, you know, kind of collected. Um, but that being said, you know, you know, obviously making sure that hygiene and, you know, making sure that when you're cleaning, sur- you're cleaning surfaces, it's still a priority uh, in many aspects. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Kaveh. I think, you know, I think people are so anxious about this new virus and, you know, it's giving us all PTSD back to March of 2020, <laughs> where we really didn't know how it was spread. I mean, remember you were told yeah. to, with COVID, uh, like Lysol, your freaking milk carton, right? So mm-hmm. people are back to that level of there are, you know, and it's going to get you in any way, shape or form. And so I think fomites are a possibility. There probably are some people that, that have and will get monkeypox from fomites, but it is far from a, a likely or a common source of transmission. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of feel like people are so focused on, is it respiratory fomites? They're, they're missing for, they're missing kind of the fact that most people already still don't even wash their hands in general right. when they're, before they eat food, touch yeah. their face. And then, you know, we all do things that have different risk levels. Yeah. So we know how to, we, we know how to assess risk. You know that drunk driving is much more dangerous than say maybe texting on your phone mm-hmm. and um, texting on your phone is probably more dangerous than like eating an in and out burger while you're driving. So we, we, people understand that they do different behaviors that have different risk levels. Mm. And so I, I would say fomites are a pretty low risk level thing. And we all do things that add some risk to our days, but we accept them because that's just part of life. Be careful with the toilet, you know, handle. <laughs> Listen, one thing <laughs> one thing I will never apologize for is telling people early on in the pandemic to wash their hands. I know, right? Because it's, or and, and telling people to take off their shoes when they come home, okay? Because that's what people should be doing. I stand by that strongly. Mm-hmm. Take off your shoes and wash your damn hands, okay? I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, all right, here's a couple more. Uh, this is an interesting one. Full name at Amicus Opus. It's a multi-part one. But uh, this is the second part I want to read. Why haven't we canceled Folsom? So I think what he's referring to is the Folsom Street Fair. Graham, can you tell us what the Folsom Street Fair is? <laughs> sure, as, a, as clearly a, a representative of, of, of Folsom. Um, <laughs> Folsom is a, um, I think it's probably best described as like a, um, a fetish and leather and um, kind of celebrating sexuality yeah. um, and kind of kinks and um, everything party. Uh, here in sunny San, San Francisco, Francisco? Yeah. on Folsom Street, right? On Folsom okay. Street, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think um, this is a. Uh, it's like the kind of picture that like Fox News will like show just to be like, look, represents what's all of San Francisco, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know, I think that the thing that we have learned from HIV and lots of lots of um, lots of epidemics is um, uh, either shaming people or um, shutting things down doesn't necessarily stop those behaviors from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to stop transmission, and, and I, I totally get to, from people that it should or that we shouldn't allow this so, to, to stop things from happening. But it, it's just kind of one of those things that humans tend to, unless you live in like a, a true police state, yeah. humans tend to be able to do the things that they want to do. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we have found, I think through social um, economics and psychology, that education yeah. and kind of nudges in the right direction are much more effective yeah. at changing humans' behaviors yeah. than trying to ban things. We saw yeah. that. I mean, hell with prohibition in the you know in the tens, twenties, whatever. Yeah. It, sometimes I I hear people say, oh, how come we aren't like, you know, the liberal doctors aren't like shaming people who go to events like this the way we were shaming right. people who wouldn't wear a mask? And I sort of say, actually, you know, if you show me like a, a if you showed me like a indoor party a year ago, I would have gone, ooh, that's, that's, that's not good. Be careful, folks. You're going to get COVID. And I look at mm-hmm. images of like that, uh, Folsom, and I'm like, careful, folks. Be careful. You're going to get, you're gonna get yeah. monkeypox. Sort of the, I, I worry. Sure. That's, right. that, that's my concern. But, that's the way too. I say it. Yeah, I worry. Sure. Yeah. But, but part of the, the problem is what comes across, I assume, to that community when we do that sort of stuff is colored by our history and by doctors in the past labeling you know homosexuality as like a psychiatric illness you know and and how doctors would treat and talk to that community that's part of our problem is how 
the medical history has colored that and and how we've tainted that and we have to be able to speak openly about it and you know it realistically and try to to stop the stigma in that way but we also have to have some reckoning with what we've done so far to that community i think there's probably some mistrust or uh i don't know maybe that's not the right word resentment or there's at least some there's there's a historic memory there's a, a scar left on the psyche of that community that we in the medical community have to address as well when we are talking about things like Folsom, which any crowd still makes me a little bit nervous, <laughs> yeah. you know, but like you're very shy. Yeah, I'm a shy guy. <laughs> I don't I mean, talking to people, as we discussed in the beginning, this one makes me very, very uncomfortable. That's why I have a podcast. Where you're I talk shy to until you get into your full latex gear and then, then I'm, you know, that, then <laughs> you're, uh, yeah, yeah. Snoopy is my code name when that happens. <laughs> Um, and when, 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 when I'm Snoopy, you know, all hell breaks loose, but still, uh, you know, I think we, we have to recognize that. I mean, I think also when you look at a lot of these, you know, events, you know, we're not, we're kind of missing opportunities for outreach to those communities. Right. Like, so for Folsom, like, I think having setting up booths and have setting up like areas so that attendees do have access to information or heck even like having access to, uh, vaccinations at those sites, like we're missing we miss opportunities like that when we're not willing to meet communities halfway uh, in situations. And instead, like telling them to just cancel it, uh, it doesn't serve anyone any good. And plus, it doesn't stop you know, <laughs> doesn't stop people from doing what they're going to do anyways right. uh, if they're going to attend this. But so I think that in general, us like trying to uh, one you know work with the venues to figure out what are better ways to make it safer, and also second, like how do we find opportunities there from a public health perspective to educate and bring resources to the people there who are going to be attending. So, um, missed opportunities. Speak. I'm thinking about the differences now, as opposed to 30, 40 years ago, there is a network of, of clinics that really specialize in LGBTQ plus kind of care. And I'm wondering, Dr. Neuro, like if the CDC is sort of, uh, skipping the the DPH level stuff and, and going right to the clinics and saying, look, here's what we need here's what here, here's some information for you like it, it, there is a ground game now possible that wasn't possible before is that is that sort of part of the strategy at cdc um unfortunately no because we're still working with i don't know like dph approach and just kind of going from a you know like working with them just having them send out their network to those like local you know health clinics mm-hmm. and I, I think that really we need to be much more targeted and go directly to those clinics as you just mentioned so we're, we're not doing that currently and that's the unfortunate factor also, Calvi, I wanted to point out that you know condoms aren't enough. It's not an STI. But a friend of mine did point out that uh, the film Naked Gun, they mm-hmm. used a full body condom. Yeah, yeah, which is the way of the Classic future. Scene. Classic scene. Classic <laughs> scene. I, I do believe in scene, safe sex. No, my, my favorite scene, by the way, is when they're mad and they're fighting and he's walking yes. away and he says, I faked all my orgasms. <laughs> Oh. Which I use a lot. I thought you were saying when they come out of the movie laughing and oh, it's, it's it a platoon. platoon. <laughs> That's a great one. That's a great one. <laughs> but I will, I will say, you know, I was on a um, uh, the California Senate had a had a hearing, an oversight hearing on monkeypox yesterday, and multiple. I think there are at least six or seven different California counties that presented. Many of them are advertising in um, on apps like Grind, you know, kind of hookup or or dating apps like Grinder and Tinder. They're advertising on TikTok, on Facebook and Meta, mm-hmm. on Twitter. So the local, you know, county health departments are trying to find ways to reach people that they normally wouldn't be able to reach through a billboard yeah. or yeah. through a television ad or something like that. So, so I think they are being really innovative more than you know. It sounds like the CDC is right now. Mm-hmm. I actually have an epidemiological question. Maybe Dr. Neuro can answer this. But we talk about a reproductive number of a virus or pathogen, and actually. A, People don't realize that it's actually a that's a biological feature and a, and also like a societal feature, right? So mm-hmm. the reproductive number of COVID in a room full of uh, you know hundred people without masks is is a lot, whereas the reproductive number uh, when you are by yourself in the woods is zero. Um, and like the reproductive number of this pathogen right now has got to be pretty high in a subset of the MSM community. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, and then outside of that, the reproductive number is probably just non-zero, but it's not what it is. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering, like, is there sort of like a, a thought of like how many people in this country are in that most high risk group? Mm-hmm. And like, therefore, like, what's the curve sort of supposed to look like? With COVID, mm-hmm. it's easy. It's like you'll get it. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. not 100 percent, but like, yeah. yeah. But like, do we know? Like, do we have a sense of like where we are? So, 
No, because I think we're still trying to even figure out the current, like, like the current context of like the MSM population is like where, like, you know, what that what that figure looks like. I mean, we do, like you said, in terms of the reproductive number, we do know that it is pretty high among sex community. But then, you know, in terms of like it's spilling over to like you know other communities, um, you know, we've only seen such limited data to the point right now where it's kind of really hard to gauge an effective reproductive number um, from that. And, you know, even for like the data in terms of like what we've seen in Africa and, you know, other countries, like uh, the data collection was very spotty and very messy and anyone who's worked in those fields. So uh, getting a real good sense in terms of like what a generalized reproductive number looks like from that is very difficult. And it's, it's kind of reason why we uh, really haven't really talked about like, you know, like what are the chances of other communities getting in and contracting it? And, you know, I think the messaging has just kind of stayed far away from that just because it's it's very hard to gauge and it's a number that no one really knows yet, unfortunately. All right. Finally, last thing I want to touch on is can we change the name of this thing? You know, <laughs> we're talking about stigma. Jeremy, what should we change it to? I'm trying to make Vetch happen mm-hmm. or or in this case, uh, <laughs> Opoxid 22. And this is let me explain why. Back in 2015 or so, the WHO released this document saying, look, let's not name viruses after places or, or, or animals. That can be stigmatizing. It's wrong. Let's name what we know. So uh, and one of the things that got that's how we got COVID-19. Right. It's it's coronavirus disease, COVID 2019. And it's technical. It releases it removes stigma. You don't have to call it some stupid thing that our president was calling it, some derogatory thing. Yeah. Or, and so monkeypox just kind of sounds a little exotic and freaky and weird i go monkeypox sounds weird yeah, yeah. Um, so it sounds like a monkey was involved let's be honest it does it's it awful does. like yeah. it, it, i mean it doesn't it does not help the stigma so the who said they actually were looking into like putting a committee together to like rename it and then like a week or two ago they're like yeah we haven't come up with anything it's like really uh so i was like literally writing my newsletter inside medicine subscribe for free um bulletin.com bulletin.com absolutely um, and we'll I was get just, the plugs. We'll get we'll plug yeah, the yeah. shit out of that at the end. Yeah. Go on. And I was just like, all right, orthopox virus, opox disease, opoxid, and the year the outbreak started. Like technically the strain probably goes a little bit further back, but let's just say the outbreak started now. We have a bunch of countries that never yeah, saw May this before. 6, 2022. Right. So opoxid twenty two. It's dry. It kinda sounds technical. I have opoxid twenty two. No big deal. Yeah. And so I I'm trying to make it happen. And I, I actually like DM'd like all these people at WHO. They're like, Oh, good idea, and I'm like trying to make it. I think it's a great idea. I'm always DMing all the people I know at the WHO too, Kyle. What about you? (laughs) I DM you, and that's about it. I know. I I do really like that, Um, uh, Jeremy. When I saw that tweet, I thought that was really smart. The tweet that I sent that did not get nearly as many likes. You know, your your smartest tweets. No. no one ever pays attention I to I send that. my best did ones. Did you see my tweet? Well, no. I send all my best ones that go nowhere to Kaveh. I'm like, why did this one not do well? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no science behind it. And I've tried really hard to, like, figure out, like, what makes a tweet just hit. Emojis. And that maybe. It's but the timing. Yeah, it's the timing plus maybe a the. A few big, big retweeters. That, that's, um, I'm sure that's a big part of it. Okay, yeah, so yeah. here, this was, this was the idea for renaming it. This is yeah. from a, a, a guy that I know on a monkeypox advocacy WhatsApp group in San Francisco. Uh, he said. Uh, Monkeypox identified in 1958 in Copenhagen, so why don't we just call it Denmark's? Denmarkin, oh, brilliant! Yeah. It's actually it's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's I mean that's like it's not bad. But, it's no epoxy twenty two. But, but but then we we run into the same problem. Like, what if it doesn't come from Denmark? I mean, I don't I don't mind naming things after European places. Like, let's especially yeah. maybe the Spanish flu that didn't work out very well. That wasn't very accurate. So maybe we, maybe it's not a good idea. So. I love the idea, though, of giving it a simple name that is objective. There's no weird stigma to it. We don't have to throw in an animal, <laughs> yeah. you know? And by the way, it works. Like, you, we can't remember a time without COVID-19. And then for a while, it was B1457. And, and then WHO said, you know what? We're going to go with Greek letters. Yeah, yeah. And, and people, oh, no one's going to follow that. They do. Yeah. yeah. It's working pretty well. All right. Okay, let's let's close up shop here. Uh, you guys have been great. I really appreciate your time. If you guys are not already familiar with these three guests, I I want you to uh, follow them on Twitter um, and read all the stuff they have, uh, which is just really amazing. It's really helpful and it's really educational. So, uh, Graham, let me start with you. Where can people follow you? At Graham Walker on Twitter. It's fantastic, funny, clever. 
And if you want to follow somebody who is on the front lines of treating monkeypox and COVID for that matter, this is your guy. Follow him. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Jeremy, um, let's let's start with your Inside Medicine. Where can people find that? InsideMedicine.Bulletin.com. It's free. A couple times a week I write about COVID, monkeypox, or whatever else is going on. I love getting it in my email. I love it. It's a good, quick read. It's not... It's, it's something that you could read in a short setting and walk away with feeling like you've learned some pretty important salient points. Thank you. Very, yep. very concise, great stuff to read. Love it. Um, where can they follow you on Twitter? At Jeremy Faust. Fantastic. Also do that. And Dr. N, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch and Instagram at Neurofoyer. Uh, you or on Twitch, it's actually just Dr. Underscore Neuro. Um, but I also want to take a moment as well to acknowledge that some of the other experts that I got, Dr. Jason Kendichuk, uh, Boguma Tatanji, Joe Osmondson, and Kaletso Makofani. Okay, fantastic. Um, thank you to everyone who wrote questions in. I'm sorry I didn't get to everyone's. Um, if I didn't this time and you have a question for the next time, let me know when you write the question. I'll make sure I get your question in, I promise. Um, and thank you to everyone following us and downloading. If you're not already doing so, find me at the House of Pod on Twitter. Thank you to Nadine for help with getting these episodes out to the public. And you guys, can we stick around for a little bit longer and have some drinks now that the show's over? Just enjoy yeah. this beautiful day. Beautiful outdoors. All right. Bye, everyone. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.